Welcome to episode 1912 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Meg, never let it be said that I did not leave the internet a better place than I found it. Because, as we reported yesterday, there was some disconcerting news about Dictionary.com. Yeah. And a, a term that was added <laughs> to the index over there. They just added all the new names, all the new words that they do every year. That just happened on Tuesday. And there were two baseball terms in the big new word dump. <laughs> the, <laughs> I guess we can't use dump anymore without thinking of Mariner's Hero. But I saw that Otani rule was one of them. Yes. Fine. No objection. Yeah. Good with that. Uh, Another was Ghost Runner. Abomination. Yes, absolute abomination on multiple levels, really. As always, just the zombie runner is an abomination in itself, the rule, but the use of the term Ghost Runner to refer to the zombie runner or even the automatic runner or Mm -hmm. any other term that you want to use that's uh, more palatable to me, that's an abomination. And then a third abomination was that the entry which said, the definition said and says, noun, baseball, a runner who is automatically placed on second base at the beginning of each half of an extra inning before any pitch is thrown, but then includes further down, origin of ghost runner, first used in 2020 for an amendment to the rules of play. And we just instinctively recoiled when we saw that. And I had to file an amicus brief. I I had to... (laughs) Right in and express my objections. I did not send a sternly worded letter. I sent a friendly worded letter. And I just offered my insight and, and my expertise on this subject. And I directed my polite, respectful feedback to the authors of that dictionary.com post, Nick Norlin and Heather Bonikowski. And I have already received a response. <gasps> yeah. Heather Bonikowski, lexicographer for Dictionary.com, has written back to me, and she says, I enjoyed your thorough response very much. (laughs) 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 I could read my thorough response. It's not as thorough as it could have been. I actually... I kept it tight. It's yeah. uh, it's like you fewer than, than 500 words. Wow. I could have gone, gone longer. Yeah, I know. I really restricted myself because yeah. you know, it could have been a impassioned screed. Yeah. But Heather wrote back, I enjoyed your thorough response very much, and we thank you for it. I sent all of your documentation <laughs> <laughs> on to the lexicographer who works on our baseball words, and she did indeed find the original sense of Ghost Runner in her second edition copy of Dixon, because I had referred her to the the third edition of the Dixon Baseball Dictionary, which includes the definition for the real definition of, of Ghost Runner, the real meaning that we grew up familiar with, which is, quote, not a real base runner employed in playground baseball and variations of softball when there is an insufficient number of players or when it is a base runner's turn to bat again, 
the ghost runner could only advance as many bases as the batter attained. That is a ghost runner. So I shared that definition from the Dixon Baseball Dictionary. So the lexicographer who specializes in baseball words for dictionary.com found this original sense of ghost runner in her second edition copy of Dixon and is digging through a pile of books for her first edition as we speak. She continues, these things take some time, but the information you shared is being further researched now, and we hope to incorporate it in a future <gasps> update. Ben. Yeah, I have did affected surface, change. Yeah, you did surface journalism, I think. I think so. I, I feel like I wrote to my congressperson and, and yeah. got an important bill put on the right. floor or, or taken off the floor or something. I didn't, of course. It is much more meaningless and inconsequential than that. But yeah. it sounds like... Something might be happening here that they might correct this wrong. They cannot undo the existence of the zombie runner, which would be great. But I am powerless to do anything about the rule itself, unfortunately, other than use my podcast platform (laughs) to rail against it. So I suppose I will have to settle for an amended dictionary.com entry, at least unless and until they actually do away with the rule. And then all of this will be moot because we will never have to use this term again, except, I guess, in exhibition games and the minor leagues, etc. Does it feel really good to, like, write a letter and actually have some change result? Because let me tell you, like, I spent a lot of time trying to correspond with the senior senator from my state, and I don't find it nearly so satisfactory. (laughs) Yeah, she she doesn't write back to you and say thank you for your thorough (laughs) response. We enjoyed it, and we will immediately do what you want. (laughs) Yeah, like, her staff does respond after a while in a way Mm -hmm. that indicates that my thorough objections were not actually read in any kind of specificity. Yeah. You know, that's neither here nor there, but I appreciate that, you know, this suggests to me that like the the spirit with which they are approaching these entries is just let's get it right, you know? Yeah. We just want to mm-hmm. get it right. Like there's no th- this does not suggest ego to me or defensiveness, but rather uh, you know, just an uh, an earnest desire to properly express the language as it is currently spoken and written and the origins that that have led to those expressions. And, you know, like, again, in marked contrast from my recent constituent experiences, what a nice thing. What a refreshing, you know, approach to these Mm -hmm. to these things. Really nice. Yeah. So I will just be over here refreshing the dictionary.com entry until something changes. Although she did warn me that these things take some time. I guess I shouldn't take it for granted that something will happen here, but it does sound like changes in the offing. So this is nice. Just a, a nice, friendly correspondence between lexicographers, yes. one professional and one amateur and pedantic and obsessed with the zombie runner, <laughs> but yeah. it, it does seem to have been taken in the spirit with which it was intended yeah. or in which it was intended. And I am happy to report that it has been read and considered and that change is coming. Yeah. I, you know, I appreciate your efforts and I appreciate the lexicographer in question. Lexicographer? Lexa. Mm-hmm lexicographer i gotta get it right because otherwise this entire segment is undone for uh for receiving it in the spirit in which it was meant and and Mm -hmm. deciding uh, yeah hey we're gonna we're gonna do something about that there yep 
Really nice. All right. I even I prefaced my response with like, if you've gotten many messages like this, I'm sorry <laughs> to, to pile on, which sometimes people who email us in response to something will say that you're probably yeah. getting tons of these messages. Yeah. Sometimes we are. Sometimes and sometimes are. not at all. It's yeah. the only one. And I did not get the sense that I was one of many emailing dictionary.com mm. about the inaccurate etymology of Ghost Runner here. So I don't think that the mail was flooding in. But anyway, whatever the case, however many people wrote in, we have uh, achieved our goal here. So I am pleased. I feel like I accomplished something today. Yeah, you you were the change you wanted to see in the world. Exactly. All right. I should warn everyone that I am watching Shohei Otani's final game <gasps> as we speak here. Bang. He just he just singled. Yeah, I don't usually multitask like this, but it, it just so happens that he is pitching and, and hitting right now. Yeah. And it's the last game of yeah. the season. So there's not going to be another. So I'm going to try to talk and also watch. But if I just suddenly trail off and, and just dreamily gaze at my phone <laughs> and <laughs> stop talking, then it's That's probably why. because I'm just wrapped okay. because Shohei Otani just did something. But I will report if he does anything notable. Speaking of service journalism, I was hoping you could do some for me, which is how do I watch the playoffs? Oh, (laughs) because I have joined the crowd of cord cutters since last postseason. Oh, that's right. You were a cable guy. I was. And a a big part of my rationale, other than just laziness and not wanting to have to deal with the cable company, is that, well, how am I going to watch the playoffs? I got to watch the playoffs, right? And I have finally taken the plunge because I understand that there are alternative means of watching the playoffs and, and watching them live. I mean, I don't mean watching archived games on MLB TV or like the, the weird angles that they sometimes have. Yeah. So what's your solution if you have a good one or what would you recommend that I do here? Well, I think that it's it's first important to understand a couple of things. Assuming that you are going to pursue legal means of watching the postseason, <laughs> which we will assume for the purposes of this segment, lest we run afoul of the powers that be. So mm-hmm. I think the first thing for you to know is to learn from my experience and know that Hulu does not have MLB Network. Okay, so that's okay. that's the first thing for you to know. I think that either Sling, Sling, uh-huh. Sling, <laughs> or, or YouTube TV, and perhaps both mm-hmm. do have MLB Network. Hold on, I'm going to cough. <laughs> I have coughed. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so when watching the MLB postseason, you have to venture into strange lands, one right. of which is MLB Network and one of which I think is TBS. Yeah. And then perhaps also TNT. Don't know. I, again, I am assuming that you are pursuing legal means and that you do not have a friend who works for an MLB team who might give to you a <laughs> login for the unblacked out MLB TV. If such a thing existed, you wouldn't be partaking in it because you don't work for an MLB organization. No, of course not. This is all above board. All above yeah. board. Yes. So given that, I think that you should factor into your analysis which of the live streaming options actually have MLB Network because it isn't all of them. Hulu has NFL Network, but mm-hmm. it does not have MLB Network, which I find to be irritating some of the time. 
<laughs> I think that most of them have TBS, so that's good. But I think that what you should do, Ben, if you have not already, is you should sign up for a free trial of one of the streaming services and then some of it you won't have to pay for. And then after that, you'll probably have to sign up for one of the, you know, streaming thingamajigs, you know, yes. thing that is a, a magic, <laughs> you know, one of those. Yes. One of those. Because the wild card is being broadcast on ESPN and also ABC. Mm -hmm. So you will need something that has ABC, although, again, I think most of them do. And then after that, you will need Fox. Or FS1, yep. and then you will also need TBS. Maybe you don't need MLB Network, actually. Maybe we don't have any MLB Network games this year. Maybe it's all on ESPN. I do know that MLB Network is going to be doing some simulcasts of of some playoff games. I do not know which ones, but some playoff games in Spanish, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. So for folks who are listening and might be interested in in checking those out, a little digging might be in order, but you know, then then you'll be able to watch stuff in in Spanish, which is very cool. But so I I think it's just as simple as signing up for a thing and now that you don't need to worry about MLB Network if the if the schedule on mlb.com is to be believed, you could pick Hulu or you could pick Sling or you could pick YouTube TV and which of those you pick is between you and your god. Okay. All right. This is all helpful. And yeah, it does appear that the only MLB Network broadcasts are in Spanish according yeah. to the schedule I'm looking at also. So, so yeah, I have not dipped my toe into the waters of live streaming so much mm. because I'm not a huge non-baseball sports watcher. So you haven't had occasion to do that. Right. And this is why I cut the cord because yeah. I was not watching very sure. much live TV other than baseball this month specifically. So, yes, I have not had to explore my options there. I have a vast suite of streaming services, just not the live ones. So mm. I will probably do something temporary. And I may actually already have YouTube TV access, at least through a family member or something. Sure. If that's still kosher. So I think that may be a solution. But my uncertainty about this issue probably kept me paying for cable longer than it should have. Yeah. So now I've finally gotten on board or, or off board, and I am figuring out these things that probably you and a lot of our listeners have figured out years ago. But I'm heartened to know that it is doable and that I can yeah. figure it out. I mean, it might be fun. It could be fun to watch exclusively through the weird camera angles <laughs> i have are. done that at times yeah yeah but i think that you will enjoy your viewing experience more in all likelihood if you don't do that yes probably. and simply pony up for like hulu or youtube tv or something mm -hmm. so yeah it's not hard ben you know i have faith in you i have confidence yeah. in your ability to stream you are you're a I think noted I can do it. streamer I guess mm -hmm. we need to figure out our Patreon postseason streams, don't we, Ben? Yeah, we we need to yeah, do that too. But yeah, look, if, if I can get the the Ghost Runner entry on Dictionary.com change, I can do anything. Yeah, that's how I feel right now. Yeah, let's <laughs> set you to work on some other stuff. Again, yeah. it might involve corresponding with my senior senator. So good luck to you. <laughs> yep, climate change put me on it. I'm just I'm on a I'm on a <laughs> roll right now. I can do this. <laughs> okay, all right. So. You have uh, an NL Rookie of the Year ballot 
to submit sometime soon, right? I if do. If you have not already. I and haven't I yet. I'm, I'm you, still you divulge. contemplating. Yes, and, yeah. and so we will talk about it at some point when you are at liberty to discuss it. Sure. How many names do you need to put on it? Is it 10? Or no. have you looked? Oh, it's it's, not... it's only three. For... Oh, it's only three. Okay. Yeah, it's not like the MVP ballot where you have to do just a, a whole mess of names, a bushel, a peck. No, it's, mm-hmm. I, I believe it is only three if my memory serves from the last time I had a ballot, which was also a Rookie of the Year ballot, but it was for the American League and it was in 2019. I believe we only had to do three. So Okay. Well, you can disregard this because if it was a, a 10 ballot dealy, I was going to do a little for your consideration kind oh. of thing, you know, like they do with the Emmys. Sure. Just to remind people, hey, did you see that show? That was a good show. Just, you know, keep that in mind. It's not that I was going to lean on you to, to vote one way or another. I was no. not going to try to, you know, put my thumb on the scale or anything. I was just going to point out that I believe that Joey Meneses is in the top 10 in war ah. among NL rookies. I, I just thought I would point that out Note just that. in case yeah, you it just had not note it. crossed your radar. Yeah. But I suppose it's not relevant unless you want to get really aggressive with your placement of Joey Manessis and put him in the top three, which is uh, probably a bridge too far. But again, yeah. you cannot divulge. I can't. Yeah. But I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> would, it, would be, it would be an aggressive placement. It would. Yeah. It would be a pretty... <laughs> It would be pretty aggressive. I have to concede I would that. Say. Yes. Yeah. Now I, I think it's safe to say that he may have brought a top three quantity of joy to sure. the people and to me specifically and yeah. to Nationals fans also among NL rookies this year. But it's not necessarily the most joy award, although it's it's correlated with joy created and generated, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah. Top three. You know, that that might be asking a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it might be a touch, a touch aggressive, just like a, t- a touch. Yeah, although really, well, look, I, I, I guess uh, it, it was a, a two-player race when we last talked about it. I, uh-huh. I suppose Brendan Donovan has inserted himself into that race, depending on which war you look at, at least. Sure. He's right up there in baseball reference war, not so much yes. in Fangraph's war. But yeah, we have, again, I am not saying this to divulge a vote. I'm simply no. noting that there is a, a difference to be had in our respective sites' estimation of his defense, a quite Indeed. meaningful difference, as it, mm-hmm. as it were. I have not, I will admit to have not having looked Today, I did earlier, but today at where he falls in terms of baseball prospectuses version of Mm -hmm. war. Yeah, because I was going to say, you know, if it was a a clear top two and then a a bunch of other guys, then, you know, what would be so bad about using a a third place vote on on Joey Manessis, right? If we all know that it's coming down to, say, Harrison Strider, then really it's it's just a a free roll what you do with that third spot. You could be the new person who accidentally voted for Ryan Tapera, except you could vote for Joey Manessis on purpose. And all the Joey Manessas fans would say, great job, Meg. Thank you for recognizing our favorite NL Rookie of the Year. My goal, well, I'll say this. So BP has Donovan at 2.8 warp 
which mm-hmm. is pretty close to our estimation of him at Fangraphs, where we have him at 2.7 war. Mm-hmm. Just to close the circle there. So my first priority in awards voting is to um, take it seriously and bring appropriate rigor to be able to defend my eventual vote, which, you know, in a year like this, one one could argue on the one hand that that is very easy to do because it's hard to go wrong with mm-hmm. your choices given how closely bunched the Braves guys in particular are. One could also argue that it will be impossible to defend the choice because they are so close to one another. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that weighs on me. The other thing, so after I have decided based on the merits of the player and hopefully have given it the consideration that it deserves because it is a serious thing, my goal is to not be talked about at all. <laughs> yeah. That's my secondary goal. It needs to be secondary because if that is yes. the primary goal, one might not bring the rigor to the decision that you you should, right? It needs to be about the players. It's not about me, right? Mm-hmm. It's about them and what they have accomplished in, in some great rookie campaigns. And, you know, that's the primary thing. Secondarily, though, I would like to, again, just not be a character on Twitter, even a little bit, you know, <laughs> which I think, you know, yeah. again, it can't be the primary motivation, but I think that resisting making it about you is a good sort of resting heart rate for su- stuff like this, because that can lead to wackiness, right? If you're trying mm-hmm. to like make a point or make a name or I don't know, engage with people more on Twitter, which seems like it can't be anyone's motivation, but sometimes you wonder about these things, right? You're like, mm, is that what you really think, or is that attention-seeking behavior? Who could say? But it's not about me. It's just about these players and what they've been able to do for themselves. But yeah, I have yep. not yet cast my vote. I have time blocked in my calendar to sit with it mm-hmm. and not look at anything but them and what they have done and, and then hopefully make a decision that people feel was, even if they don't ultimately agree with it, was sort of rooted in the right understanding of what a rookie of the year is and how yep. these uh, guys measure up to that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, this is kind of <sighs> concerning. I was just tagged in a tweet oh, no. by Dictionary.com. Oh, no. <laughs> which maybe while I was discussing the coming amendment to the Dictionary.com entry for Ghost Runner, tweeted the definition of Ghost Runner, the, in my mind, erroneous dictionary.com definition of this. This was at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, which is while we were recording. So I'm, I'm going to just chalk this up to the lexicographers not yet syncing up with the social team, probably, and, and informing them that, hey, you might want to sit on that Ghost Runner tweet because we might be changing that up because <gasps> we've, we've gotten a, a very thorough... Yeah email from an interested party right yeah yeah. sent us a lot of documentation i'm seeing i'm seeing this now yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so i was quote tweeted in this perhaps for the first time one of the other three quote tweets as we speak here is by emma tiedemann who is a a broadcaster for the portland sea dogs in double a and she has quote tweeted this and said zombie runner greater than sign ghost runner so Thank you, Emma, for for representing my interests here. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just uh, an important thing. Oh, hey, hey, Julio hit a home run. Oh, all right. And see, I wasn't looking at Twitter. I was trying, you know, I try to not look at other stuff while we are potting to your yeah. to your earlier point. I sent so, you there. I, I gave you a license yeah, to look And now yeah. I'm just sitting here being like, hey, there's Julio Rodriguez soon to appear in the postseason hitting, hitting mm-hmm. a home run. So yep. there's that. Mm. Oh, boy. Shohei Otani is, is through one inning, which means that he has now qualified Whoa. for the ERA title for whatever that's worth. So he is now 
officially the first player to have qualified as both a batter and a pitcher in the same season, which is a pretty impressive accomplishment, I would say. And, you know, he's basically been the best pitcher in baseball for four months or so yeah. <laughs> at this point. Not saying anything about awards. I'm just making an observation about Otani. I can say something about Otani or Judge without it being construed as an argument against the other one. Yeah. I'm praising one. I do not come to denigrate the other. Yeah. They're both great and wonderful and amazing at baseball. <laughs> it's, it's not a political statement. I'm just saying that Shohei Otani is, is really good at baseball. Does not preclude Aaron Judge also being really good or even possibly better. Just making an innocent observation. You, just, you have to be careful these days. You say anything about one or the other, you almost have to just preface it with some sort of disclaimer right. or else there will be a, a clamor. Yeah, I mean, look, these are touchy times. Mm-hmm. People are on edge about stuff. So yep. we don't have to be. We could be fine. We could decide mm-hmm. to not be on edge about stuff, but we have decided to be on edge about stuff. You know, I'm personally relieved in a lot of ways that like I don't have a an AL Rookie of the Year vote. Oh, yeah. Not because it's not also a very close race. It's an incredibly close race, at least by our estimation of war. But, you know, now that I've rediscovered my Mariners fandom, I would not want to be accused of bias. <laughs> right, so yeah. I'm relieved to be spared that. Yeah. The only reason really that you could think Julio was good was that you were a Mariners fan who was just biased. I can't imagine any other reason why. Well, uh, so. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like, But you're reasonable, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> is the thing, Ben. You're famously very even keeled. You're a, a reasonable sort. And not everyone out there on the internet is reasonable. You know, some of them not everyone come yeah. with axes to grind mm-hmm. and teeth to gnash. And yep. so I would worry about that. I don't think anyone's going to accuse me of any particular bias in the NL rookie of the, the year race. Because, like, what do I care? You know, mm-hmm. just a bunch of guys yep. who play in the National League. I guess the AL race comes down to a Mariner and an Oriole, much like the race for (laughs) the wild card in the AL. Yeah. So we'll see if it goes the same way. Yeah. I mean, Julio did just set a new Mariners rookie record for Mm -hmm. home runs in a season. How much do we care about team-specific rookie records? Not very much, right? Not not very much. (laughs) No. Well, it's a couple of qualifiers there. Yeah. I would care about it if I were that player or even perhaps a fan of that team. But beyond that, probably not a whole lot. Yeah, that's fair. He's done a lot of other very impressive things and been the fastest to this and that. So I don't know that that that's even the the biggest bobble in his crown on, on this season when he has accomplished so much. Yeah, I mean, I think that there there are probably other things that we will point to when it's all said and done. But, mm-hmm. you know, it sure is. Uh, you have to change the, the minimum plate appearances on the the just general leaderboard, not the rookie leaderboard, to get Julio in there. But can we take a moment to appreciate something? Are you prepared to yeah. appreciate something? Mm-hmm. This is just on the AL side. We can do the same exercise on the NL side if we want to. But, you know, you'll be unsurprised to learn Aaron Judge at the top of this leaderboard. Aaron Judge getting a, a well-deserved day off. Uh, yes. Available off the bench in the Yankees final contest, but getting to rest a little bit. Gosh, at some point, we probably should have been talking about Jose Altuve's season a little bit more, huh? He's been great, man. Yeah. I mean, he was already on basically a a Hall of Fame career path, and and he's having 
I haven't looked very recently, but last time I did, it was like a career year, right? Or at least offensively. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that his Hall of Fame case, much like the other Astros from that Mm -hmm. era of Astro, will be complicated. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, he is... Well, 2017, right, was the the MVP year, notoriously. Mm -hmm. 7.5 wins by Fangraphs. Yes. Um, And then 2016. Better WRC Plus this year, just slightly. But yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So some of this is, you're right, from an offensive perspective, he's really putting up a a campaign, right? Mm -hmm. And I will note here again. I'm right now looking at the batting leaderboard, so that is why Otani is not going to appear uh, mm-hmm. in this. So everybody, relax. <laughs> it's fine. So we got we have Judge. We have two Astros. We have Altuve and then Jordan Alvarez, who is just having a tremendous season at the plate. Andres Jimenez, which just makes me happy. Xander Bogarts, having a who will have some decisions to make. Jose Ramirez. Mike Trout, again, I have knocked the plate appearance minimum down to 300 here. Yes, Bregman. He's going to fall just short of qualifying yeah, as a batter, even though he's going to have the second most home runs in the league. So Yeah, and then Bregman, and then two rookies, Adley Rutschman and Julio Rodriguez. So mm-hmm. how delightful is that, you know? Yeah, you know, I wanted to mention someone who, who must have been just below the names you were naming on your list. Jeff McNeil? Yeah. Well, I was only looking at the AL. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you would have gotten to him before then, probably, if you had been looking at at both leagues or the NL, because he's going to win the batting title. Yeah. And that's all well and good. But Jeff McNeil is, he's he's really good. You know, like he had an off year last year. Yeah. But beyond that, he's been like one of the the best hitters in baseball. If we were to just throw out last year, which we can't really do, but if we did it anyway, I mean, he's uh, solidly in sort of like the the 140-ish WRC plus OPS plus range year after year, and he does it in a really rare way in today's game. I mean, he's like a six-win player this year. Like, that is, that's no joke. Like, you think about a batting title winner, you know, you think about like Luis Arise, who I love Luis Arise, and he is going to win the batting title, but he has not had that sort of superstar all-around season. He he doesn't provide the well-rounded value that some others do, so he's obviously been an above-average player, but he's not going to give you a a ton on defense, on the bases, etc. He's a guy who makes a lot of contact and gets a lot of hits, and and that's fun and rare in this era, too. But McNeil does that and more because he's also going to give you good defense and probably decent base running and he's not just a batting average guy like you know he he has a little bit of a pop like not a, a ton obviously no. but like it's a really rare combination of skills like looking at his war which is just right around six according to yep. both fan graphs and baseball reference like I did a little stat head. This is not even a a sponsored stat head search, which will maybe come a little later in the program. This is just an organic. I was curious and I used stat head because it's good and not even because they sponsor the podcast sort of search. But I was looking for seasons that were war this high. So he's at 5.8 at baseball reference. So war of 5.8 or more. And then I limited the fielding runs. He's at 
six fielding runs above average according to baseball reference. So I I limited it to six or below because I I didn't want to get a bunch of seasons where someone had a, a really extreme defense year which can maybe sometimes be a bit suspect or, or more so than than the equivalent value on offense, at least. Just not to say that you cannot be that much above average on defense, of course. But sometimes if someone is not that big a bat and they end up having a five or six war season or something and it's because they were like plus 20 or plus 25 or something on defense, you know, you raise your eyebrow and you think, are they really that good? Or is it just some wonky, smallish, sample defensive stat fluke? So I limited it to where he is on defense, where he is on war, and then home runs less than 10 because he has nine homers. And that's a really rare combination of of skills and and value in today's game or or even like going back a bit because to be that good overall, to be like a a six-win player essentially without an outlier defensive rating and without a double-digit home run total, that's really rare. Like, you have to hit for a high batting average, which he does, especially considering the era. So the last player to fit those criteria was Joe Maurer in 2010. So it's been a while, and, and he was kind of that same sort of player offensively, too, who would hit for high averages sometimes. And other than that one year, generally not hit a lot of homers. He was a catcher, of course, which was immensely valuable, but... 2010 Joe Mauro, the last McNeil season like this one, and then Ichiro in 2007. And then before Ichiro, you have to go all the way back to Roberto Alomar in 1992, Pip Roberts in 1990, and then some 80s guys, Wade Boggs, Brett Butler, Ricky Henderson, Tim Raines. So he's kind of like an 80s-style player. He's sort of like a a throwback. Like it's it's a strange skill set for this day and age, but a really fun and entertaining and, and pretty consistent one. Like people have doubted whether he was actually this good. He wasn't like this highly touted coming up as someone who would be this sort of star, but he is. He's uh, he's quite good. Yeah, he's quite good, you know? You're yeah. you're not wrong about that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I like Jeff McNeil. Quite enjoy his work. <laughs> so, everyone appreciate Jeff McNeil along with me. So, I wanted to bring to your attention something that I saw in the Baseball Reference attendance page. I I was just scanning attendance by team and by season and the average by game just because we are a game away from having final numbers here. Yeah. And generally, obviously, attendance is way up over last year when most places started limited at the beginning of the season. Attendance was restricted because of COVID. So, Just about everyone has upped their attendance year over year on an average basis. Attendance is still down a bit relative to 2019, but not drastically so. It doesn't seem that there was any pent-up demand that has manifested itself, really. I I remember doing a little stat blast about the idea that there was pent-up demand and that everyone who couldn't go to the ballpark during COVID for so long was just, like, raring to go and would just be, like, pounding down the doors as soon as they were able to go. And I sort of was skeptical, cast some doubt on that. It it doesn't seem to have happened, although I guess it's hard to tell because a lot has changed and people are just naturally cautious about things that maybe they weren't as cautious about before. Sure. Anyway, I noticed that there are two teams that have actually had their attendance decrease relative to last season. Only two, but those two are kind of interesting. So 
One of them is the Cincinnati Reds. Sure. <laughs> now, that's not shocking. No. <laughs> if I gave you some time to think about it, you probably would have guessed them. They would have been close to the top of your list yeah. because, of course, they traded away most of their good players, <laughs> and they also, like— actively repelled people right like yeah. the team president was like where are you gonna go like we're your only option so what are you gonna do and i guess the collective response of the reds fan base was well <laughs> maybe we can't go to another big league ballpark but it doesn't mean we have to go to yours if right. you are not giving us a good reason to be there so the reds this year having very publicly broadcasted the signal that they were not going to try to contend this year and very obviously taken a, a clear step back and sort yeah. of given up on this season the fans did too to some extent understandably and they're down about 1,380 fans per game relative to last year, and I don't remember the specifics of uh, how restricted their attendance was, yeah. but I assume it was somewhat. The only other team that has had its per-game attendance decrease since last season, Texas Rangers, interesting. which is interesting. Now, I think they were the team that opened up from the get-go last year, right? I remember yeah. we talked about that. We talked to Bradford Doolittle, I believe, about that. Yep. They kind of threw caution to the winds and were just yeah. like, yep, let's go. So I guess they were not restricted or at least not as restricted as most teams were. So that may be part of it. However, they sort of sent the opposite signal that the Reds did, right? Like yeah. the Rangers, maybe not convincingly, but right. they were like, we are going to go for it, or at least right. we're going to sign some big free agents here. We're going to go get Corey Seager. We're going to go get Marcus Semien. We're going to yeah. go get John Gray. Like we're going to spend a lot, which you would think some people might have wanted to go see those players. Now, they didn't get off to great starts, and obviously the season has not gone great, yeah. and they've changed their manager, and they've changed their president of baseball operations, and they've lost a ton of one-run games. Like, it has not been a successful season, but no. kind of interesting that they are the one other team because they almost took polar opposite stances in yeah. the offseason where it was like, we're tearing down, we can't compete, we're going to, whatever the Reds GM said they were going to do, align their payroll with their resources or whatever yeah. the phrasing was. I've tried to put it out of my mind, but that sent one signal. The Rangers sent the opposite signal, which was, hey, we're going to try to win here. We're going to go get some big free agents and spend some money. And they appear to have had basically the same results, again, with the, the caveat that maybe the, the Rangers Park was opened more fully earlier. So the Rangers are, are down about 1,200 fans per game year over year. So I don't know what to make of that exactly. Yeah. Maybe how you fare in the season has a greater bearing on your attendance by the end sure. of the year than the tack you took over the winter yeah. and whether you tried to signal that you were contending maybe whether you actually did contend yes ends up <laughs> being more important but yeah. like even oakland ended up gaining fans on That's average wild. i know i did not expect to see that at all now maybe they were restricted last year too i don't remember yeah i don't recall i wouldn't not be surprised given yeah. where their their park yeah. is located i know that California did take things like, you right. know, more seriously than Texas. <laughs> yes, you could say that. Although, not that they were like pushing capacity as it was. Right, think. right. <laughs> but, but they drew an average of 85.58 last year. And this year, entering 
this game, which perhaps will be boosted slightly by Shohei Otani starting. Sure. 98-31, which actually that is higher than I would have guessed, and that is higher than probably some of the dire estimates would have been earlier in the year when they had like whatever they were drawing, just, you know, three or 4,000 or whatever it was for for some games, as I recall. So not that they ended up giving Ace fans any additional reason to come watch that team as the season went on, but I guess a few of them did anyway. Yeah. I mean, we also have to like factor in that it's not like you're only watching the A's, right? You're not only watching the Reds. So I don't know. Maybe people were just like, this is the baseball that we can go see. And they mm-hmm. went and saw other teams come through who they were excited to to watch play. I mean, I mm-hmm. guess that's a possibility also. Yep. I just was tagged by someone on Twitter oh. on the dictionary.com tweet who said, I assume no one at all has tagged you in this. <laughs> <laughs> but... Their display name is Shohei Otani Enjoyer, so that's okay. I yeah. don't mind the extra tag. There so the biggest attendance gain was Toronto. Okay. So they were up 22,690. Again, that's a case where you know they yeah. were playing all over the continent last yeah. year, so that's a skewed somewhat. Yes. And the Cardinals. The Cardinals are about 15,000 up this year per game. Huh. So Cardinals fans have returned in force, maybe to see the last act of, of Pujols and Molina and yeah. potentially Wainwright. Although it doesn't seem like Wainwright is actually retiring. Like it, it seems yeah. like he intends to pitch again. And it he's does just seem like, like that, doesn't he, it? He's, he's getting lumped in with Molina and Pujols. He's, I mean, I get why. Like, why not yeah. have the three of them take their bows together? But also yes. it's like, actually, I'm not leaving yet. Yeah. I, I think I'll be back. <laughs> but they are... Up second most, and then the Yankees, despite all the ups and downs, they are up 14,500. And then your Seattle Mariners wedged right between the Yankees and the Dodgers, and then the Mets after them. So the Mariners are up uh, 13,600-something per game. So this is all skewed, and and I'm just interested in it in a relative sense because it's all kind of out of whack because of how weird last year was and, and obviously the year before that. But yeah, interesting that those two teams were in the red, I thought. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, I would have guessed the one, but probably not yeah. the other. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And did you get the, the press release from MLB about the gambling thing that they're doing, the, the gambling initiative? No, I don't know so that I did. I got this release the other day. The subject line was MLB announces new strategic initiatives to promote responsible wagering. And the body of... Uh, I hate it here. <laughs> yeah, my, my eyebrow went up, or both of them did, when I saw the, the subject line and did not go down as I read on. So, I, yeah, because I was going to say, are they promoting gambling responsibly or are they promoting <laughs> responsible gambling, right? Like, are mm. you trying to get people to bet more or are you trying to get people who are already betting to bet responsibly? Right, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so... The text of the email says, Major League Baseball announced today a new partnership with the American Gaming Association's mm. Have a Game Plan, Bet Responsibly public service campaign to educate fans and broaden the league's responsible gaming efforts. In addition, MLB expanded its partnership with the National Council on Problem Gambling, with the league now serving as a platinum member and a part of the group's leadership circle. Does that mean it gets to use airport lounges or like... <laughs> Yeah, they get they get comped their suites at the casino or something in the Yikes. Platinum member. I don't know. 
quote, as legalized wagering continues to grow across the country, MLB is committed to ensuring that fans who choose to wager also have the tools and resources necessary to bet responsibly, said Kenny Gersh, MLB Executive Vice President Business Development. With the expertise and additional resources of the AGA and NCPG, we'll be able to expand our responsible gaming efforts further, driving new education, awareness, and support service initiatives that will help keep sports betting safe, fun, and entertaining for all those who participate. Well, it sounds great. As Have a Game Plan partners, MLB will run responsible sports betting public service announcements across select MLB broadcast and digital media channels starting with the 2022 postseason. So that's something to look forward to. Mm. The league will also extend campaign partnership opportunities to all 30 MLB clubs. The AGA will provide MLB with counsel and expertise to deepen league-wide responsible gaming knowledge through benchmarking and annual trainings on best practices. Love to read about benchmarking and best practices. Welcoming Major League Baseball as a Have a Game Plan partner is a milestone for the campaign and responsible gaming efforts nationwide, says the senior vice president of the AGA. MLB understands that as legal sports betting grows, so does our collective commitment to responsibility. This partnership will have meaningful impact teaching fans across the country the fundamentals of responsible wagering. And it notes that MLB was the first professional sports league to join as a member of NCPG in 2005. Now, as a platinum member and part of the organization's leadership circle, it will work closely with the executive director's team on various initiatives related to problem gambling and promote the NCPG's national problem gambling helpline across all of MLB's media platforms. So I've been kind of reading this with a, a certain tone, (laughs) a certain skeptical tone. There's also a a quote here from the NCPG executive director who says, we applaud MLB's ongoing commitment to addressing problem gambling and look forward to their expanded effort to support responsible gambling education to fans and families across the country. If gambling becomes a problem, knowing the resources for help is crucial. MLB's extensive reach will make a significant impact in raising awareness of the national problem gambling helpline and the resources available for treatment. So I haven't done a a deep dive on this research. I don't know how legit all of this is. Sure. I don't mean to to mock the the helpline. If the helpline is helping people, I'm glad of it. But I'm sure that there is a a somewhat cynical aspect to all of this, I I would think. Not necessarily so cynical as like we want (laughs) to run PSAs about problem gambling because it will remind people that they can gamble i don't know if it's if it's that dystopian or not it's not like there's any shortage of gambling advertising as it is on baseball broadcasts or every broadcast under the sun yeah i just i imagine that this is more about providing cover probably like if you're a sports league and you're promoting gambling because you're making money off it you know that some percentage of people are not going to be able to gamble responsibly. I mean, (laughs) some people are just wired that way. Yeah. And there's plenty of precedent from other countries and there have been all sorts of problems and some other countries have had regulation about how you can advertise and who can serve as sponsors and all that sort of thing where we're kind of behind on that. Maybe we'll get there someday. Maybe we won't, but we've been behind just because it got legalized later here. But I've read all kinds of concerning things about the effect that it has had in Europe and in other places around the country where it was legal earlier. 
So you know that there's just there's going to be some fallout from that. There are just going to be casualties. There are going to be problem yep. gamblers, whatever percentage it is. And if you really wanted to stop that entirely, you, you'd have to say no gambling at all. So I guess if you are partnering and doing these initiatives and PSAs and everything, I mean, look, if it helps people, I, I hope it does. I hope it does stop one from yeah. developing bad habits. But also, I assume it's something that MLB can point to and say, you know, if they ever receive criticism for the way that they are promoting gambling or what they have or haven't done when it comes to helping with problem gambling, they can say, hey, we're a platinum member of this and that. And we've run all these PSAs and therefore we've been proactive about this and you can't bother us about it anymore. I would imagine, again, I haven't spoken to anyone. I haven't done any reporting about this. Just, uh, you know, uninformed or semi-informed or as informed as I am about anything in baseball observation that I imagine that that, that was one motivation, maybe sure. a, a main motivation for doing this, which, you know, I guess makes sense from a, a business perspective. Right. Like, you know, there's a certain amount of problem gambling that they are deeming to be sort of a tolerable amount of it, right? Because mm -hmm. we know that there are plenty of people who decide to gamble on sports and they do it as like a fun thing for them and it isn't a destructive force within their lives. It's not a compulsive force within their lives. They just like are like, I have opinions about the Dodgers and I'm going to express those by betting, right? And mm -hmm. there's like a large percentage of people for whom that is true and that's fine. And then there is a percentage of people who engage in gambling and it is destructive for them and we have decided collectively how involved like all of the interested parties are in that decision how thoughtful it has been how much we have grappled with like how different it is potentially again this is not me speaking from a, a, a position of expertise but just wondering like have we really unpacked is it different to be forced to walk into a casino and place a bet at a sports book versus having it on your phone. I don't know if we know that, right? I assume that the that it's stickier to be able to bet on your phone versus having to go to a physical place, but like yeah, I don't know think. that for sure, mm -hmm. right? But we've decided collectively that there's like an amount of problem gambling that we're okay with because we let there be legalized gambling. We make that decision about all kinds of things from a public yeah, policy sure. perspective, right? There's an amount of problem drinking that we've decided we're okay with because mm -hmm. it's legal to drink. And, you know, you can go on and on with these things, right? But yeah, it does strike me as like, this is PR as much as it is anything else. Now, there are plenty of things that businesses engage in from a PR perspective that have some marginal good, right? That True. have some mm -hmm. utility, I don't think that their primary purpose is that utility. Their primary purpose is to provide cover for behaviors that that business entity was likely to engage in anyway, but we may as well make you feel better about us doing it while we're at it, right? Because <laughs> you're more likely to think that we're like, okay, folks, if we do that. I think it's fine to point that out and also acknowledge that like it's good that there be free resources for people who find themselves suddenly realizing that you know this thing that they thought they could do casually and in a fun way has has taken on a bigger prominence in their life than is healthy for them so like that's mm -hmm. a good thing to have those are good and important resources but i don't think that like 
they're being provided just out of the goodness of MLB's heart. Mm-hmm. You know, we can acknowledge that and and not be wishing that they didn't exist. Like, I'm glad those resources are there for people, even though I don't think that like if MLB wasn't partnered with sports books, I doubt that they would do this just like out of the goodness of their heart. Right? They're not writing mm-hmm. a check to an association that helps people who have issues with gambling if they aren't in bed with with sports books so that Mm -hmm. you know is maybe one test of like how altruistic it is but you know what are you gonna do yep well something to watch out for during this postseason you may see some psas if you still have cable or if like me hopefully you figure out how to watch baseball without cable so yes uh, we bring up this topic from time to time and and mostly it's just that we find it unappealing personally to us and we have some level of of concern about people who may have a problem with this yeah i am not someone who says that it should not be legal or that people can enjoy it responsibly should not enjoy it responsibly it's just it is a a problem inevitably for some people and i don't know what the best way to, to counteract that but that is obviously one huge drawback of it. And the other is that we are just constantly deluged and bombarded. <laughs> and that's inundated. not going to get any better. Oh, so, God, no. It's definitely that's the, not. That's the main complaint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they need some PSAs about that. Like, <laughs> we apologize for just how in your face this is. And right. here's a PSA, which will remind you about it again. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like, this is neither here nor there. But, like, if the gambling ads could also just be kind of sensical, that would help, mm. too. Like, mm-hmm. have we talked on the podcast about the DraftKings ad? Or have <laughs> we just gotten a million yeah. and a half emails about it? I've mentioned it once on an outro because we got a couple emails about it. Yeah, just a, about the, the DraftKings ad that talks about pitchers hitting grand slams and, and four-man outfields, yeah. neither of which is going to be a thing <laughs> next season. And the pitchers hitting grand slams already not a thing. So yeah. it seemed like an interesting kind of choice for ad copy because I believe that that ad debuted this season yes. long after it became clear that pitchers were not going to be hitting right. grand slams other than Shohei Otani. So. <laughs> right. Because yeah. what happened was, you know, if people are <laughs> as obsessed with some of the aesthetic choices of the DraftKings ads as I am, the woman who normally did them went on maternity leave. Like she had a ah. baby and then they had to like shoot a new ad, I assume, huh. um, because she was, you know, at home with her baby. And I don't know what her current relationship with DraftKings is. I'm not like creepy. I just am like interested <laughs> in the aesthetic choices that they make on the DraftKings ads. And so they shot this new ad and I don't know when it was shot. So maybe they shot it before the rule changes became permanent, but I struggle to believe that that is true. So yeah, it's just like a lot of choices and the the derisive tone with which the nah is issued. It's just like... <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it debuted, I believe, it, it looks like June 22nd was right. when that ad was published. And I can't imagine that the lead time was terribly long. This is, it's can't have been a, a month's long production. It's not a masterpiece. Production. You know, it's <laughs> no. not up for any awards. Yeah. So they should have been well aware that there was a universal DH by that point, I would think. Yeah. I mean, you would... You would think that. And then my my thought was like, are they, like, is he trying to refer to Otani specifically? But then wouldn't you make it about like a two-way player? Like, wouldn't you 
Yeah, because that's an even better argument. The, right. The thrust of the ad is that baseball's not dying, right? That it's actually good, and therefore, I guess you should bet on it. <laughs> so right. you think Otani would be a, a better argument than just generic pitchers hitting grand slams. Like when I first saw it or, or someone first wrote to us about it, I, I thought maybe it dated from last year or something. And it was right. a reference to Daniel Camarena, the Padres reliever who hit that memorable grand slam, which was awesome. But that doesn't happen anymore other right. than Otati. So by this June, I don't know how that ad got greenlit, but it is in heavy, heavy rotation oh my because God. I just see it constantly. Constantly. Just like yeah. a... It's just constant. I can't decide which I see more. That or like a terrifying series of political ads. I forgot how how much more you get advertised to when you live in a swing state, Ben. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of the time. You get mm-hmm. just a just a a lot. Otani's only hit one grand slam, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the yep. one grand slam. Yes. Yes. Just the one time he hit the grand slam. And was he was he pitching that day? I don't recall. I'm trying to use Stathead quickly and I'm not succeeding, but that's because of my internet, not because of Stathead, which is great. Use Stathead. Use our code. Get some discounts. Yeah, that was on May tenth. I do not think he was pitching that day. So then what are we even talking about? <laughs> These yeah. are the things that you talk about before the postseason starts, because if you don't, you never get a chance to talk about them ever again. <laughs> yep. <sighs> All right. So I have a couple stat blasts to share. Maybe I can do that here so we sure. can play our little ditty. We have mentioned the StatHead tool and sang its praises already in this episode, but go to StatHead.com, use our coupon code WILD20, and you can get a $20 discount on the $80 one-year subscription if you're signing up for the single sport, and baseball specifically. They have other sports. They also have a multi-sport package you can utilize too, but they have souped up the playoff options. You can search many more playoff queries now than you could have before and and they've spruced it up and sped it up and so you will want to have that handy as we embark on October baseball here so I've got a few here I guess first I will mention this one so I got kind of curious about the worst best player ever on a team I think this was prompted by my maybe looking at the team page for the Tigers. <laughs> Sorry, oh, Tigers. No. And noticing that they did not really have any good players this nah. year. <laughs> the best of the bunch was maybe grim. Javi Baez. It depends on what war you look at. But I think Tarek Skubal is actually above him, according to Fangraph's yes, war. And I think that's he right. is uh, long since injured. So other than that, it's Javi Baez. And 
whichever war you look at and whichever player is the leader, it's it's less than three war. They do not have a, a three war player this season. And I was wondering if, if that was at all notable. So they are not actually, according to, to Fangraphs, were technically the team with the worst best player this season. So the Nationals, the Nationals war leader this year is one Juan Soto who is no longer a national, but he had 2.7 war while he was a national. And then after that, 2.5 for Josh Bell, also no longer a national. So the the highest war for a current national, someone who is still in the organization, is Keeper Ruiz. And just behind him, a tenth of a war, is my man Joey Manessis. Yeah. (laughs) That's something. But... And this is uh, either position players or pitchers. They do not have any pitchers who are high on that list. You will be surprised to find, I believe. Yikes! Hunter Hunter Harvey, I think, is leading them with one pitcher war. (laughs) That's that's the best they've got. So the Nationals topped out at 2.7 and not even someone who's still on the team. The Reds are sort of in a similar boat. Maybe even a more depressing boat, as we were just talking about. So the Reds' war leader, also 2.7, according to Fangraphs, but it's Brandon Drury, mm. not a Red. No. After that, Tyler Maley, not a Red. No. <laughs> Luis Castillo, not, not a, a Red. red. <laughs> so you have to go all the way down to Nick Lodolo at 1.8. Mm. Again, for this stat blast, I, I'm not actually doing like did you spend the whole year with the team did you finish the year with the team if you accrued that value while you were with that team then it counts and the fans got to enjoy that so i'm not discounting that it's just extra depressing when they're not actually on the team anymore and it's not an impressive total to begin with (laughs) it doesn't feel good you know it feels particularly bad yeah the royals are also down there or up there Brady Singer is at 2.9. Bobby Witt Jr. is at 2.3. Those are the Royals' war leaders. I mentioned the Tigers, the Rockies. They have a three-war guy. Ryan McMahon is at 3.0. And the Pirates have Brian Hayes at 3.1. Those are the teams I spot-checked, figuring yeah. that they might they not might. have anyone yeah. <laughs> who was uh, all that high. So I was curious, like, was this historic? Like, how bad is that? Yeah. How bad is the worst ever best player on a team, war leader-wise at least? So Ryan Nelson searched this for me, frequent stat blast consultant. I probably could have done this through the Fangraphs leaderboards, I imagine, but he saved me the trouble. And you can find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. So I excluded pre-1900 So I went with quote-unquote modern era Mm. just because there were some short seasons back in the 19th century. It would have screwed all sorts of things up. And I excluded 2020, and I excluded the strike seasons, at least the most prominent strike seasons, 94 and 81. And that leads us with the worst best player on a team of all time is Ron Hunt of the 1963 Mets who was worth a mere 1.9 war. So that is the the lowest war total ever, or at least with the restrictions I mentioned, for the best player on the team, 1.9. Yeah, so that makes uh, Tarek Skubal and Javi Baez and that bunch uh, actually look pretty good. (laughs) They, They cleared that low bar by a lot. So people remember Ron Hunt 
for his hit-by-pitch proclivities and, and for being hit by 50 pitches in 1971. But in 1963, he was hit by only 13 pitches, and he had a 110 OPS plus for the Mets, who were a new franchise, uh, not an expansion team, but not far removed from being an expansion team. And he was actually the runner-up rookie of the year that year, but he was the best the Mets had, and he was not that great. (laughs) So that's the answer to that trivia question. After Ron Hunt, it is Don Hurst, who was a first baseman for the 1928 Phillies. He was at 2.1. Then more recently, you have Elmer Descends for the 2001 Reds. He was at 2.2. Then, I guess I should have done this stat blast last year, you have Merrill Kelly of mm. the 2021 Diamondbacks at 2.3. And then you have Jewish Chassin, 2017 Padres at 2.3. Nick Castellanos, 2018 Tigers, 2.3. Yep. Austin Hedges, 2.3 as well for the 2018 Padres and the list goes on. Yeah, pitch framing is valuable. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I will link to the, the full list, but basically you can be an average player and be the best player on a very bad team. It yeah. is rare for that to happen, but but it has happened. It's just going to feel not great for some teams for a while. That's <laughs> That's one of my takeaways from that stat blast. It's like, you know... You're thinking about like the Tigers and the Reds. It's like whose mm-hmm. fortunes are going to be dramatically different next year. And it's like, I don't know if any of those teams are on my list. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If you had told Tigers fans before the I season. Know. Well, if you had told them, hey, Javi Baez is, is going to meet your gonna team be in your war. Best guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'd or, be like, great. Sign us up yeah, for that. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Our big free agent edition. Oh. Looks like it paid off. <laughs> Yeah, and then the monkey's paw curls. and Yeah, that didn't yeah. happen. So <laughs> not a successful season. Not no, at all. But definitely not. Not a historic worst best player either. So that's the saving grace, I guess. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> of note, though, the, the lowest team leader in batter fan graphs were in a non-19th century, non-shortened season was the 1962 Astros. Mm. So again, a, a new franchise. They had three players tie with 1.1 War on the batting wow. side, Roman Mejias, Bob Aspermonte, and Al Spangler. And then the lowest team leader in pitcher fangraphs war with the same qualifications is the 2006 Nationals, who had two pitchers tie with 1.0, John Patterson and LeVon Hernandez. But <laughs> as noted, the 2022 Nationals pitching fangraphs war leader. At the time Ryan ran this, it was a tie between Hunter Harvey and Patrick Corbin at 0.8. And I believe it is now Hunter Harvey at 1.0. So I guess he has tied the earlier Nationals team for having the worst best pitcher. Yikes. <laughs> so that happened. <laughs> Yikes. Nationals. Yep. Yikes. Mm-hmm. All right. Another stat blast comes to us from Joseph, who writes in and says, As more and more teams clinch playoff spots, I've gotten to thinking about how many players make it to the playoffs at any point in their career. Mm. Do you all know what percentage of Major League players played in the playoffs at any point in their career? I presume this would have gone up over the years as the playoff field expanded. Sure. But you always hear players saying how much it means for them to play in the postseason. So I wondered how many of them actually do. I also wondered about how many of them ever win a World Series. 
There might be some notable players here, like ones who have tons of career playing time but never won a World Series or even made the playoffs, or someone who played very sparingly but somehow won several World Series, like mercenary pinch runners. So Ryan ran this for me as well. He looked at the playoff rate and I think the making the World Series. I'm not sure if he ran the winning a World Series version, Mm. but making the World Series, winning a pennant. So for making the playoffs, and I will put this all online and link to it on the show page as usual, but he looked basically at the rate of making the playoffs for all players who debuted in every given season. And yeah, it increases a lot over time (laughs) just because uh, more and more teams have made the playoffs. The playoffs keep expanding. It used to be just the best team in each league when there even was a playoffs. (laughs) Initially, there wasn't a playoffs at all, so it was zero (laughs) for many years. So you have to go to 1887. That's the first debut year. I guess it's debut year, not birth year. That's the first debut year where someone who debuted that year did eventually play in the playoffs. But it goes up and up. And obviously it it declines in very recent seasons just because players have not been around as long and have not had as many chances to make the playoffs. But the peak rate thus far is 2012. That is the debut year when the highest percentage of players who debuted that season have qualified for the playoffs at any point in their career. And this is no career playing time minimum. This is if you were a major leaguer for a day, you're in the sample. And using that very broad definition, it's 41.75% of players who debuted in 2012 made the playoffs or have Mm. made the playoffs so far. So 86 of the players who debuted that year have made it not counting this year, I imagine. And that's the peak. So it was sort of working its way up to that peak. And then it has been lower than that ever since, just because players have not been around as long and have not had as many spins of the wheels. So one would imagine that the percentages for recent seasons will keep creeping up to be at least that high, if not higher, now that the playoffs are expanded even further. Maybe the there will be a new peak sometime soon but the peak thus far yeah it's uh you know 42 percent or so so still like more than half of all players never make the playoffs like even in in that peak year and i guess that percentage could continue to climb a little bit but still like you know fewer than half of of all major leaguers can say that they made the playoffs even at the very peak period and and before that for much of baseball history it was a lot lower obviously it was in the teens you know like looking at the the 1930s it was like in the teens or maybe 20% and then you know just kind of hanging around there for a while cuz until you got to the divisional era there was no real expansion in the number yeah. of playoff teams. So it just sort of hung around like for, for decades and decades, like into debut years in the early 50s or or even mid 50s or even late 50s or early 60s. It was like 20% or, or lower. So back then, obviously, like I, I don't want to say making the playoffs meant less. It, it still meant a lot, but... I think probably we were less likely to judge players based yeah. on that. Like, you know, did they 
have rings? Did they make X number of playoff appearances? How did they do in the playoffs? And certain players, if you were on the Yankees, you were perennially in the postseason for right. long stretches of baseball history. But most players were not. They they never got to be in the postseason. Just there were fewer spots open. So. Yeah. There was a real primacy to the regular season then, for better or worse. So I asked Ryan to rerun it with a slightly more exclusive group. So players who had at least five-year careers instead of just anyone who was a major leaguer at any point. And if you limit it to that, then the sample goes up, of course, because uh, the percentage that is goes up because we exclude some players who were just cup of coffee guys and didn't get lucky. So. Here, the peak is still the same year, so debut year of 2012, but now the peak is not almost 42%, but almost 73%. So almost 73% of players who debuted in 2012 and have had five-year careers, they have made the playoffs at, at some point so far. So you could say maybe three quarters or so roughly and you know it was uh gradually growing and growing but again even if you look back at the pre-divisional era if you look back at like the 20s and in the 30s of you know we were talking like a third of players maybe roughly 40 percent it jumps around a bit based on the debut year but still like into the the 50s we're talking like low 40 percent and you know, 1960 debut year, 33.33% of players who debuted in 1960 and had at least five-year careers ever made the playoffs. Like, you know, fewer players would debut per year back then, so a smaller sample sure. and, and more fluctuation. But even then, like, it, it wasn't necessarily a, a majority of players who hung around for a while who could count on making the playoffs. It was much more of a, a rarity than it is now. And as for the World Series appearance metric so this one actually has the opposite pattern this actually decreases the percentage of players who have made the world series because back then there were no rounds before the world series so if you made the playoffs that meant you made the world series it was the the same thing so there were fewer teams of course And because there were fewer teams and there was no obstacle to getting into the World Series if you were the best team in your league, then it was somewhat more common. So I think this was uh, probably with the the same career playing time minimum, maybe. And you actually had pretty good rates of players who debuted in, in some early years. Like the peak was 1918. And again, this is a a small sample of just like players who debuted in 1918, but 65 percent of them went on to make the World Series at some point. It's only like 20 players. So that was an outlier year. The year after that, it was 30.6 percent, but it bounces around. But basically, it was pretty high back in the day. And now, like if we go to 2012, the year that was the peak for the rate of playoff appearances, 33.6% of players, it it looks like, who debuted that year and I guess have had more extended careers have appeared in a World Series. So that is a a lower rate than the previous two rates that I quoted, obviously. And then, you know, it it goes down further from there. So if you're looking at like uh, 2007 debuts, let's say, or 2008 debuts, it's like, a quarter of players, it, I would say it's roughly a, a 
quarter of players or a quarter to a third have played in a World Series or at least made a World Series at, at some point in their career. So again, it continues to be a rarity. That particular thing is even rarer than it used to be just because there are more playoff rounds, even though there are more playoff teams and there are many more teams than there used to be. So it's just, you know, it, we should celebrate players who, who win and yeah. obviously players all want to win, but a lot of them don't get to. Yeah. And you can't count on it and it doesn't make you a failure if you did not ever make a World Series or even did not make a playoffs. Like it, it happens to a lot of players, yeah. you know, now the better you are, <laughs> I guess if you're Felix, you know, if you're yeah. Ernie Banks, then you make your teams better and, and then it. You have a, a very long career, and it, because of those two factors, it's it's less likely that you will never make the playoffs the way that, that they did not. So that's right. still somewhat notable. But still, nothing to be ashamed of yeah. if you uh, don't ever make it. And, and that's different, I think, in baseball than in at least some other sports, right? Yeah. Like you talk about great NBA players, right? Like they're not great NBA players who have had long careers and never made the playoffs, you know, or like probably ever even made a finals like that would be rare too just because if you're a, a great player in that sport you're one of five people on the court on right. the floor so you know your team's probably going to be good right <laughs> that is not the case in baseball where you could be the best player ever and your team could still suck right. <laughs> there are recent examples of that so it highlights some of the differences which you know it could be good it could be bad but it is a very different world yeah it's it's not that it can't happen in other sports but it's just a lot less likely to because as you said like your ability to be the difference maker is so much more profound when it's only a couple of guys on the court at a time it's right. just not as common of a thing you know mm -hmm. yeah, yeah exactly i have one more here and this was a, a listener and patreon supporter who took it upon themselves to do some some fascinating research here that a fellow Patreon supporter and Discord group member classified as, quote, the most EW shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> this was prompted by someone musing in the Discord group, which is great, by the way, if you're yeah. a Patreon supporter and you're not a Discord group member, consider joining. And if you're not a Patreon member, and you should still consider joining because yeah. it's a fun place to talk to other smart baseball people who listen to this podcast, especially during the playoffs, I imagine. So someone was wondering about Mike Trout's long observed tendency to tweet airplane emojis yeah. when he's traveling somewhere, followed by some number of exclamation points, but not the same number, nope. a varying yep. number of exclamation points. And someone wondered in the Discord group, like, is there meaning to this? Oh. Like the, num the number of plane emojis? Because it's a different number of plane emojis sure. he tweets too. Right. So does it correlate to, to anything? Like, does he tweet more plane emojis if he's, like, taking a longer plane trip or something? So people were wondering whether this signified anything other than Mike Trout just randomly mashing emojis. And... Listener, Patreon supporter, just wanted to be identified by their username in the Discord group Asian Brave. They have done the research here, really exhaustive research, and have chronicled every instance of Mike Trout tweeting an airplane emoji, followed by exclamation marks. And, and this goes back to 2013. 
His very first one ever was September 18th, 2013. He tweeted, Anaheim with one plane emoji followed by three exclamation points. And the rest is history. He has continued yeah. to do this. This is a was common topic of discussion, as I recall, early in the podcast history to oh, talk yeah. about Mike Trout's Twitter punctuation because he had and, and maybe still has a habit of inserting a space before the exclamation points. Yeah. And we wondered forever whether that was like a, an autocorrect thing, whether his yeah. phone was doing that or, or whether he was taking it upon himself to, to do that. I don't know that we ever got an answer, but I assume that is a, an automated thing. And I don't know if it still happens. But this airplane emoji matter, I don't know that we ever did a, a deep dive into this. And so... Our our listener here, our, our plucky listener, did really just like exhaustive research, and there's a spreadsheet, and it's color coded, oh and it's, it's broken down by season, and there are all kinds of factors like how was Mike Trout hitting at the time? Oh my gosh! Like what was his his rolling weighted on base average? At each time that he tweeted one of these things and like were the angels playing well, like were they coming off a win or a loss? Like he really, I don't know if it's a he, they did a, a very deep dive on just every factor to come up with any kind of possible correlation. And we have like leaderboards here essentially. So yeah. his career year for this was 2016 when he used emojis very often per tweet and, and tweeted often. So just like broken down. So this was his age 24 season. In 2016, he tweeted 176 total airplane emojis with a rate of 5.03 airplane emojis per tweet. And 113 total exclamation points for a rate of 3.23 exclamation points per tweet. And there were 23 such tweets. So this is per tweet, I think, per airplane emoji tweet, not per all of his tweets, although he doesn't do that many tweets. But the record for the rate basis, that was the record 5.03 airplane emojis per tweet. He did have 3.29 exclamation marks per tweet way back in 2014, and that was 35 tweets, so pretty big sample there. So he was most exclamation point happy early in his career in 2014, and then the airplane emojis really just got out of hand. I mean, it was like (laughs) a steep, steep increase. 2013, I mentioned he did his first one ever in September, so he only had two of these tweets in 2013. 2014, it ramped up to 35, and he went from one airplane emoji per tweet in his rookie airplane emoji tweeting season Mm. to 3.51. So that was a big jump. And then in 2015, he went from 3.51 to 4.03, and then the career year, 2016, 5.03. I don't know what the aging curve looks like for this like across the league as a whole we only have a sample size of one unfortunately (laughs) i think to to judge by (laughs) but this year at least i think this is up to date so he's had 28 most recently he tweeted on september 25th anaheim followed by five airplane emojis and only two exclamation points so again i don't know if that means he's excited or not yeah. And again, it may not correlate to excitement at all. That was the, the purpose of doing this research. So 
this season, he's had 28 of these tweets, which is up a lot. That is double his rate from last year, presumably because he was injured for most of last year. Sure. So I guess he was not tweeting this, or at least not regularly, when he was on the IL, even if he was traveling with the team. I guess he was not really in a emoji airplane tweeting mood if he was not going to get in the game. And then 2020, he only had eight because it was a shortened season. So this year, bounced back to, to 28, which is his high since 2018. And he has tweeted a total of 128 airplane emojis this season, which is tied with 2018 at least uh, I think it's second after the career year of 2016. He's at 4.57 airplane emojis per tweet this year. It's, uh, you know, pretty high. It's at least medium range for his, his recent several seasons. And he's tweeted 68 exclamation points with a rate of 2.43 exclamation points per airplane emoji tweet this season. They even broke it down by his destination. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, a lot of labor went into this. So obviously, like Anaheim, the most popular destination, he has sent 63 of these tweets with a total of 282 airplane emojis when he is bound for Anaheim with a a rate of 4.48 airplane emojis per tweet and 2.81 exclamation points, which is not notable particularly. So he has tweeted the most times heading to Anaheim because he goes to Anaheim most often, but... He has not tweeted more than the usual number, really, of airplane emojis or exclamation points when he is bound for Anaheim. Read into that whatever you will. When he's on a hot streak, he goes with 4.55 airplane emojis per tweet compared to 4.19 when he's on a cold streak. So slight difference there. Although the difference in exclamation points is, is negligible. Nothing there. And on opening day... He has done five of these tweets, and he has a a 4.6 airplane emoji per tweet rate on opening day (laughs) with only 2.6 exclamation points. It's interesting. There doesn't seem to be a strong correlation between the airplane emojis and the exclamation points, which you would think that if he's like in a really great mood, he's like mashing the emojis. He might mash the exclamation points too, but... Maybe it's like he he only wants to use a certain number of characters, so you take away from one when you you add the other, potentially. But off of a good game, so coming off of a good game, 4.26 airplane emojis per tweet. Off of a bad game, 4.47. So actually more emojis, more airplane emojis coming off a bad game than a good game, Mm. which, again, probably not a statistically significant difference here. We're talking about only like uh, 75 or so tweets. But if we wanted to read too far into it, we could say he's happy to get out of town. Yeah. Right. Coming sure. off the bad game. Like you, you could say, well, he's in a good mood coming off the good game. But no, like he, he's happy to get out of there. He thinks yeah. his, his luck will change when he goes to the new city. So he tweets more airplane emojis. And, you know, I, I think that we've learned a lot here coming off of an Angels win. He's at 4.2 airplane emojis per tweet off of an Angels loss. So, yeah, again, it seems like off of the loss, he is more prone to tweeting emojis. He's just like a a change of scenery guy. He's like, turn the page, you know, be optimistic. Let's look forward to the future. Better results lie ahead. That's how I'm choosing to read this. Although, 
He sends 2.95 exclamation points per tweet after an Angels win and 2.76 exclamation points after an Angels loss. So Mm. hard to say. It's tough to parse this, but I'm glad that the data has been gathered and I applaud the research that went into this. Also, he sometimes tweets these in like December without saying where he's going. (laughs) So like he's probably just going on vacation and maybe doesn't want to announce where he will be. Well, sure, because, you know, he cares about privacy. Yeah. But the conclusion of the researcher was that the career year was 2016. Overall, the composition seems pretty random, but he does seem to have a slight tendency to use more planes when he's in a good mood on opening day or on a hot streak or going back to Anaheim, but it's very subtle. And also the Angels 670 and 695 in this time frame, that's a 491 winning percentage. The amount of time Trout tweets after a win is also 49.1%. So there's a little fun fact for you. So thank you for this <laughs> and apologies to everyone listening who I have inflicted this upon but hopefully they found it as fascinating as I have and maybe I will make an effort to to share this data if anyone wants to do some you know hardcore like machine learning type of analysis oh, yeah. look for some some deep learning patterns here that maybe we didn't pick up on superficially just looking at correlations and, and heat maps and that kind of thing I think that one of my favorite things about our podcast, both uh, when it comes to you as a host, co-host, and our listeners is not assuming that just because something is silly or small that it shouldn't be taken seriously. Yeah. You know? I think that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about it. So. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm the, the Close Encounters guy with the mashed potatoes, and it's like, this must mean something. Yeah. And I don't know that it does, but... <laughs> Man, I haven't watched Close Encounters in a long time. I yeah. love remembering that there's something I want to watch like two days before the postseason, because that means I definitely will get to it soon, you know? Maybe in November. Yeah. Okay, I will retroactively devote that deep dive into Trout's tweeting habits to Trout himself in honor of his 40th homer of the season and his 350th career. He ended up having not too shabby a season for someone who played only 119 games, missed the rest of the time with a somewhat serious injury that also sapped some of his strength before he went on the I.L., And briefly, because of a comment by the Angels trainer, scared us all into thinking that his career could be over or that he'd never be the same. Long may he be the same. Or if not the same, just continually improving or slightly altered versions of the amazing Mike Trout we know. All right, I had to cut things short there, or not short, but slightly less long before the past blast, so I will deliver it now. And it comes to us, as usual, from Jacob Pomranke of Sabre, Sabre's Director of Editorial Content and the Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. This is episode 1912. This past blast comes from 1912, and Jacob headlines it, 1912, Player Owner versus Owner Owner. It's common for a popular player to retire and join a team's front office in some capacity. Less common is when a player has enough money saved up to buy shares in the team and become a partial owner, as Buster Posey recently did with the Giants. But it's been more than 100 years since a player joined the ownership ranks while still actively playing. In 1912, Frank Chance of the Chicago Cubs and Jake Stahl of the Boston Red Sox wore multiple hats by playing first base, managing their clubs, and also having a financial stake in the team. 
While Stahl led the Red Sox to a World Series in Fenway Park's opening year, Chance didn't get along well with the bombastic Cubs owner Charlie Murphy. As the Sporting News reported, quote, This stock proposition has worried Chance a lot. To the possession of a tenth interest in the club, the peerless leader attributes some of his nervous troubles. The knowledge that part of his season's earnings depended on how much money his team could draw through the turnstiles has proved one worry too many when added to the worries of managing a winning team and playing first base too. He had to give up first basing or break down. Chance believes he can continue to manage on a straight salary basis and even hopes to be able to return to first base. Jacob continues, Charlie Murphy, who was about to start a fire sale of the Cubs dynasty, would not allow Chance to stick around for long in Chicago. Chance sold his shares in the club for $40,000, about $1.2 million in today's money, and moved on to New York to manage the Yankees in 1913. And this sort of thing would be prohibited not long after, I believe. This came up on episode 1813, our stanky draft, because there's a rule, maybe possibly prompted by Rogers Hornsby, that prevents players or managers from holding ownership stock in a franchise, except under some specific circumstances. And often it is said to be because Rogers Hornsby, who was a a player manager for the Cardinals at the time, he had a stake in the team, but then he was traded to the Giants. And so he was forced to sell his shares in the Cardinals in order to prevent a conflict of interest. Then there was a rule subsequently enacted to permit players or managers to be part owners of the team they play for, but require a written agreement for how they will divest their ownership if they move on to another team, plus approval by the commissioner. And when Ted Turner, the owner of the Braves, took over briefly as manager after a 16-game losing streak, this rule was invoked and Turner's tenure as manager ended after one game. I believe the CBA has this provision. It was Rule 4C, at least under the old uniform player's contract. Kevin Goldstein wrote about this for BP a while back. 4C said the player represents that he does not directly or indirectly own stock or have any financial interest in the ownership or earnings of any major league club, except as here and after expressly set forth and covenants that he will not hereafter while connected with any major league club acquire or hold any such stock or interest except in accordance with major league rule 20E. 20E said, no manager or player on a club shall directly or indirectly own stock or any other proprietary interest or have any financial interest in the club by which the manager or player is employed, except under an agreement approved by the commissioner, which agreement shall provide for the immediate sale and the terms thereof of such stock or other proprietary interest or financial interest in the event of the manager or player's transfer, if a player or playing manager to or joining another club. A manager or player having any such interest in the club by which the manager or player is employed shall be ineligible to play for or manage any other club in that league while, in the opinion of the commissioner, such interest is retained by or for the manager or player directly or indirectly. So that's why we don't see this sort of thing now, even with the modern equivalent of the peerless leader. But it is interesting that this was a a source of stress for Chance to have a part ownership stake in addition to playing and managing. Having to worry about how many people the team was drawing and how that would affect his earnings, that was too much. Don't want that burden of the extra income contingent on performance and attendance. Also, meant to mention, if today's stat blast sounded at all familiar, it may have reminded you of episode 1743 from a year or so ago, when I did a stat blast about the worst best player for a division winner. Today's was just for any team. And the answer to that one was Will Clark, who had 4.2 war for the 1987 Giants. The average war for a division winner's best player was 7.1. 
As I speak and prepare to post this podcast, every MLB game has concluded. So that is a season wrap on the 2022 MLB regular season. I had fun. Hope you had fun. And before it was over, by the way, the Dodgers ran their run differential up to plus 334, which is the highest since the 1939 Yankees. It's the fourth highest, I believe, in the live ball era after only some 1920s and 1930s Yankees teams. So it's the the best run differential since integration. That is unbelievable. That's a hell of a season. 111 wins and a historic run differential. And now it all resets to zero, although there's still a first round bye and home field advantage. And now the playoffs begin. Exciting times. I already had a great day. I got to quote a dictionary definition to the people who make the dictionary definitions. These are the joys podcasting provides. So thanks to all of you for following along during the regular season with us. It has been a lot of fun to talk to you. And stay tuned for playoff previewing and playoff coverage and, of course, the usual off-season Effectively Wild, which is always fun, too. The end of the season does not mean the end of our podcasting. And... You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help get themselves access to some perks, and also help us stay ad-free aside from our Stathead sponsorship. Today's thank yous go out to Keith F., Casey Reed, David Sanchez, Alex Markle, and Liam Delahanty. Thanks to all of you. Patreon supporters get access to the aforementioned Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters. You've got to get in on that action if you have not already. You also get access to monthly bonus podcasts, plus a couple of playoff live streams coming up soon sometime this month, and access to merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and a whole host of other options. Check it out. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can find and follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week, and I believe before the start of the postseason, if all goes well. So we will talk to you soon. Soon.